So, yes, there we go. So, where we are uh, is in, there are four dialogues that occur during um, what we think of as the Lord's Supper table. So, I had one of the commentaries that I I like to utilize uh, actually said, and I I used it last week, and I'm going to use it again this week, that the, the dishes are still sitting on the table from the Lord's Supper. And we've all been in that situation where, you know, you're kind of sitting around the table, you, you've eaten in a restaurant, you, you've eaten your Thanksgiving meal, the dishes are still on the table, but nobody's in a hurry to clean them up, y'all are just sitting around talking. And this is exactly what's going on. They had finished their Passover meal, everybody's kind of let their sands of pants out a little bit, they, they've taken the Lord's Supper, and Jesus is talking to them, teaching them at this time. We had the Lord's Supper introduced where Jesus said, My body which is given for you is going to be broken. My blood is literally going to be shed for you, and it's represented by this cup. And then Jesus said, The person who's going to betray me is right here in this room. Which immediately made them turn to each other and go, it's you, you're the one. No, it's you. No, it's going to be, maybe it's me. I, and they're talking to each other back and forth, and that degrades into an argument over who's the greatest. And we looked at that in depth about how God has called each and every person in this room to great things, and there's nothing wrong with that, but when that becomes, I'm better than him, then that becomes wicked. That's the enemy's twisting of what is a natural gift that God gives. In that conversation, Jesus reminded them that I am your leader, I'm among you, and I'm, I serve you. Don't be like those people, those Gentiles who, who think that because everybody serves them that they're important, you serve everybody. And we talked about how in the church that's the way it's supposed to be. He then turns and looks at Simon and says, Simon, Simon. The devil wants to attack y'all, all the disciples. He wants to sift you like wheat. And we looked at last week how the sifting of wheat was done with a big sieve that they would shake, that your world is about to be rocked. And he continues that thought into the text this week. He says, hey, when I sent you out, with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? Here he's alluding to, uh, there are two stories in the book of Luke where this happens. In Luke chapter 9, we read that Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. Here Jesus sends them out and says, don't take extra stuff. Now, there are some of the men in this room who uh, might have heard of a kind of a movement among folks. It's called everyday carry. I, I, I really like, in fact, I get an uh, email every day that is the new thing in everyday carry. And if you ever see me around town, or I always carry a purse. And I don't call it a man purse. It's just a straight up purse. It's a bag. And I, there are some things that I carry with me pretty much everywhere I go. 
uh, I carry a flashlight. You'd be surprised how often, even in the daytime, you need a flashlight. I always carry a pocket knife. I have a pocket knife on me right now. And some may ask, why do you need a pocket knife when you're preaching? It's like, you never know. But if I need it, it's right here in my pocket. I always have a pencil, a pen. I, I, and I, I have this bag, and I, I um, carry a bunch of stuff that I carry everywhere that I go. My son kind of inherited that from me. He also carries a bag around. And people have made fun of him because he always has tons and tons of food in his bag. And so they've gotten places, and he's, somebody's like, man, I'm hungry. We need to get somewhere. Oh, you're hungry? Here. And he just starts pulling out of his bag, and he's got oranges and bananas and snacks, and, and you need some, some uh, pig skins, got that. I mean, he, he's got food with him. And so what Jesus is saying here is you don't need your everyday carry stuff. I, in fact, I want you on this mission trip not to take anything extra. I want you to learn that God will provide for your every need. Just one chapter later, the same sort of thing happens. In 10, he says, go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Don't take a money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. Now, why he says not to, to, to uh, greet anybody on the road is more along the lines of, of that culture. And I can tell you exactly why that is from my experience in Turkey. In Turkey... Um, we talked about how you couldn't say that you were a missionary. That w- wasn't allowed, and so you kind of had to have uh, a backstory, or we called it a, a simple, truthful statement that you had to be able to make. And so our STS was that I ran and owned an adventure travel company. And so we would, uh, college kids would come in, and we had one group, of, we called them the old men that came in. We, we had people would come in, and I would take them on hiking tours. And I would guide them up in the, the Kachkar Mountains and, and the mountains um, all around the Black Sea. And very commonly, we would be, you'd have to hike for a day or two, and you would enter a village. And when you went into that village, kind of the understood way that you did everything was, somewhere in that village is going to be a building, and there's going to be two or three old men sitting in front of that building, and they're going to be drinking tea, and they're going to be playing OK, which is kind of like gin rummy, but you play it with... Um, Don, they look like dominoes, but instead of dots, they say four on them. But it's gin rummy, essentially, but there's this clicking sound that's very, that goes with okay. And you'd find that group of old men, and you would sit down with them and chat. And as you chatted, they would say, what are you doing here? And you'd say, well, I, I'm leading a tour group, and we're on purpose. We're going to villages. They want to really understand the culture. And so the way to do that is to get out in the villages. And they said, well, where are you planning on staying? And, well, we brought tents. And so just outside the village, we were going to sit out. No. You are not going to sleep in a tent. That would bring shame to that village. You're going to sleep in my house tonight. And these guys, they can sleep in John's house, and these guys can sleep in Mahmoud's house, and these guys can sleep. And they would parse us out into homes in that village. And when you went into that home, A, you were going to eat like a king. They would literally take a week's worth of food that they had prepared for themselves, and they would prepare it, and they would feed you beyond belief. Um, and B, you were sleeping in the bed. Usually it was a one, not a one-bedroom house, a one-room house, um, and they had one bed that they would pull out, and you got the bed, and the old man would sleep on the ground. But that, was, that, that hospitality that was required of the culture is what Jesus is talking about. Don't stop and start chatting with people, making sure that you've got some place to stay, that you've got some place to take care of. You wait in the first house you go into, that's the house I want you to see that God's going to bless you there. 
And so what Jesus is trying to teach them in Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 10, is A, you can, when you are serving your king, you can depend on him. He will provide for your every need. Now that's not teaching us that we get a new truck and a pony, we get everything that we want. But it is teaching you that as you're in the fight for Jesus, as you're doing things to build the kingdom, that your every need will be met. I've seen that in my ministry time and time and time and time again. Donna will come and say, hey, we've had a bunch of people quit in the nursery. I don't know what we're going to do. We need to start. And I'll say, what we need to start doing is praying because God will bring the person that needs to be there. God will not leave his people with real need. Now, I've seen every time when we have real need, God raises up somebody to meet that need. I've seen financially in church, get, get down to, we got 38 cents left in the bank, I don't know how we're going to pay it, and God provides for his people. Every time. And so, Jesus is teaching them in Luke chapter 9, Luke chapter 10, that as you're out serving me, I'm always going to provide. In fact, he asked them, when I did that, when I sent you out without anything, did you need anything? Did you go hungry any nights? Were there any nights that you slept out in the, in the dirt? Were there, did you have any real needs? And what did they answer? Did you lack anything, Jesus asked? And they said, nothing. God's Faithful to, to faithfulness to them was proven. Oftentimes, as we enter difficult times in our life, it's really instrumental for us to look back. We have a lot of faith in the rearview mirror. And it's easy for us to look back and say, you know what, here was this time that God provided for me. There was this time that I didn't know how God was going to provide, and He did. Now, I will say that my life never looks like I planned it. I, I am in the habit of every year, first of the year, sitting down and writing out my one-year plan, my three-year plan, and my ten-year plan. And I can look at some of my ten-year plans, my ten-year plans that I wrote out for this church, well, you can take COVID and take all those 10-year plans and wad them up and throw them in the trash can. My 10-year plans never look like I plan them. But you know what I can, can say is that through all of everything, God is faithful. And I have lacked nothing. So I can agree and I can see what these guys are talking about, that God provides. And Jesus is reminding them because he's about to say some really harsh things. He says, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And so now we don't really use a money bag, so it doesn't, this may slip past us, but in these days what people would do is if they had any extra cash, uh, you didn't have a bank, you could go roll down and put it in, you would have a bag that you hooked on your belt, and that was how you kept your money. So he said, if you've got any extra money, don't keep it in the mattress, don't keep it, you need it with you. You need to be able to provide for yourself. You need to be, be able to, to buy anything that you need. If you've got extra money, now's the time to take your debit card with you when you go, because you're going to need some cash. I can uh, remember when I was in Haiti right after the earthquake, I went to Haiti to do a site survey, and um, there was a point where I didn't know exactly how I was going to get from Port-au-Prince back to the Dominican Republic. 
And so my plan had been to either walk or walk at least far enough out to the city to, buy, to get a bus. And so I had some cash with me. I know exact, so you know exactly what you're talking about. You need to have some cash. You need to have a knapsack. You need to have your everyday carry with you. Jesus is saying, be prepared. You need to do the work that is required so that you've got the stuff that you need. You need to get your pocket knife. You need to get your flashlight and make sure it's got new batteries. You need, to get, you need to get you an MRE and stuff down in the bottom of your bag in case you get in a situation where you can't eat. You need to be prepared. And then he makes a statement that would have rocked their world. He says, If you have, a, uh, it's now time to sell your cloak if you don't have a sword and buy one. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy it. Now, this is shocking, and we're going to have to take a little bit of time and unpack that because nobody in this room wears a cloak, and I'm pretty sure that very few people in this room own a sword. For about a 1,000 years, since about a 1,000 A.D., this text has been used to, to justify war. It's been used to justify uh, conversions at the edge of the sword. It's been used to justify all kinds of silly activities in the name of Christ, because we don't understand the, the context that it's given in. So first we've got to understand what a cloak is, because like I said, none of us have a cloak. So we're, for the next 10 minutes or so, we're going to have to do some teaching, and I have brought in some, uh, some, so, some object lessons. So the closest thing in modern society that we have for a cloak is this. Now those of you who have ever been in the military know exactly what this is. I've been told that people in the Army call it a whoobie. Um, I was in the Marine Corps. We called it a poncho liner. This is everybody's favorite piece of gear. It's a, it, you use it in the military as a, a blanket. You use it as a, you put it in your, in your sleeping bag. If it's too hot to sleep in the sleeping bag, you lay on top of your sleeping bag and it becomes your blankie. It, uh, it's really common any morning that you're in the field to see about half the troops walking around like this with, with their whoopee and their canteen cup. Because this is the everything. This is exactly the same size as a cloak. And so what they would have would be a piece of fabric, usually a lighter wool. There's a tunic that they would wear over the top of this in the winter. And they would wrap it around themselves. And then they would put a belt on the outside. Remember when we were studying the, um, the spiritual warfare, we talked about when the Bible says to... Put on the belt of truth and gird up your loins. This is what it's talking about. Because you'd reach through, grab one side of this, pull it up, cinch that belt on tight, and that meant you were ready to fight. Because you didn't have your cloak getting in the way. In the, in first, actually, for most of human history, the most important garment you owned was your cloak. You Essentially, every day you wore... Uh, and kind of a, a linen undergarment that'd be your drawers, it'd be your undies, and then over that you would wear your cloak during the day. This was your clothes. So for, for um, modesty, for warmth, you could use this as your towel. If you went and got in the creek and, and took a bath, this is what you'd use to dry off with. This was everything. At night, this was your blankie. You would flow it out, and you would sleep with it. In fact, this is such an important piece of everyday wear that in the law, if someone used their cloak to take out a loan, hey man, I need to borrow $5. Let me borrow $5. I'll get it back to you. Here's my cloak to prove that I'm going to come back. 
the law forbade someone keeping that someone's cloak through the night. In the book of Exodus, it says, If you ever take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for it is his only covering, and it is his, it, it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? And if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. The cruelest thing you could do is keep somebody's cloak overnight. Nobody wants to sleep without a blanket or a sheet. Deuteronomy, it says, If a poor man, you shall not keep, as if he is a poor man, you shall not keep his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteous for you before the Lord your God. The cloak was a person's most important piece of clothing. It was a big deal. And so Jesus is saying, trouble is coming. If you don't have a sword, hawk your cloak and buy one. That's a big statement. He is literally saying, and I want to quote from one of the commentaries that I use, when one needs a sword more than a cloak, serious danger is at hand. Jesus is saying, I see them long, hard times are about to come. If he's telling them to hawk their cloak and buy a sword, that's bad news. Now, when I hear sword, like you, I think of Braveheart, big broad sword. I didn't have one of those, but I brought um, the uh, Marine Corps' Uh, saber. This is what we think of with sword, right? It's a weapon of war. It's used to reach out and kill somebody. It's if Jesus is going to have militarily overthrow the Roman government, this is what you would need. And there's a Greek word for this kind of sword, a long sword. That's not the word that Jesus used. So when Jesus says, if you don't own a sword, sell your cloak and buy one, this kind of sword or a broadsword is not what Jesus has in mind. There's a different word that's used for that. And that is um, a word for a short sword. It's called a, a makaria, and it is a short, more like a large knife. Probably closer to something like this. Now, when I was in Nepal on a mission trip, I noticed that whether I was in Kathmandu or whether I was in Birat Nagar or whether I was in the woods, every male in that culture carried one of these. Some were bigger, some were smaller. Some were like this one, they were fancy. Some were very, very plain. This was your axe. This was your machete. This was your knife and fork when you ate. The first time I saw one used... Um, that way, I was teaching there. The reason I had gone was to teach, um, teach uh, pastors how to go from uh, Bible study to sermon preparation. And when we did the budget, I saw on the budget that there was like $15 for, and Kika had written this budget out for me to prove, and it says, the big pig. That was how he defined it. And so when we got there, and for a week, all we ate was rice and maybe some vegetables, I got more and more excited about the big pig. And one day I was up teaching. We had 50 pastors and their families crammed into this little 
pole barn, and I'm up teaching, and I saw this girl who looked like she was about three years old walking up the hill with a string leading a big pig, and I instantly started salivating. It's like, we've got the big pig, man, the big pig. And so as I'm finishing up, and I'm finishing up quick, I mean, you, you, th- you throw some barbecue out there, this sermon would be a lot shorter. And so I see the big pig as, as she's coming up, uh, and I'm, as I'm finishing up, okay, so this is why, blah, blah, and I, I, I hear the big pig meet his maker. Because pigs aren't quiet when they die. And this pig um, went off into eternity. And I'm excited. So the way it kind of worked was, was that I would teach for an hour, and then the, another pastor who was there would stand up and do practical application. And so I, I closed in prayer, Lord bless our, our teaching, Lord uh, bless Patrick as he comes, and immediately went outside because I wanted to watch the big pig get, getting cooked up. And so there were two guys who looked like they were about six and eight who had these kind of knives, and what they did was uh, they didn't skin the big pig, much to my horror. Uh, what they did was is they... they they killed the big pig, they bled the big pig out, and they, they kind of removed his entrails and his guts, and then they drug him over to this fire they had and just kind of rolled him around in the fire to burn the hair off. Pigs, not on, on uh, TV shows, have a lot of hair on them. And so they rolled him around in that, and then this kid squats, because everybody outside of America squats all the time. He squatted down, and we had like a four-by-four, four, and he starts pulling that big pig and just whack and whack. And he starts cutting the legs off. And he throws them into this big pot. And then they, they, they cut up the meat a little bit and they threw it into the big pot. And I'm sitting here in horror because I'm like, you're ruining the big pig. You got fire, you got pig, let's just spit that bad boy and eat it. Well, I did find out, I, I've been accused of not finishing the stories, uh, that as the guest of honor at this particular thing, I got the piece of meat that was the most desirable by all these Nephilim men, and that was the side of the pig, which was primarily skin, fat, and maybe just a little bit of red meat. And they sat this in front of me, and they all, me and Patrick, sat across from each other at a little table, and 50 pastors and their starving families all sat around us to watch us eat this fat and skin, and so I'm as hungry as I was. I was still pretty nauseous from the sight. And when you bite into it, and it it's the grease kind of squirts into your mouth. God saved me though because He sent a cur dog, and everybody tried to run this dog off. It's a wild dog, and the dog ended up trying to get away from everybody else. Got under my chair, and so I could sit there and go, mm, "This is <coughs> good stuff," and fed all of that fat to that dog. And then when I finished, they're like, would you like more? And I'm like, no, no, whoo, I'm full. And then I went to my room and ate peanut butter. But everybody owned a knife like this. In Nogolin, they have a very similar thing. Every man there carries something like this. This is the, their machete. This is their, uh, it can be used as a weapon if you need it, but its primary purpose is strictly utilitarian. It's everything. If you want to smash your rice and make flour out of it, you use the hilt. If you want to, to uh, cut up your meat, you use this. If you, if you want uh, uh, to get your way through the jungle, you do it this way. If you want to chop up firewood, you do it this. This is everything. It's a short knife that's used for everything that there is. This is what Jesus is referring to. It can be used as a defensive weapon, the little short makara, but it wasn't used as an offensive weapon at all because it was short. All you could do was parry or block 
the Roman soldiers carried it, but they carried this type of weapon to primarily, again, use as a tool and as de- defense. So what G- Jesus' point about this is not, is if I said, which I have said just jokingly or, or, or around here with people when they go, what do you think is going to happen? And I say, I don't know, man. If I was you, I'd get caught up on my prayer life and I'd buy some ammo. Jesus is saying, the point of what Jesus is saying is not the sword. He's, don't get wrapped up with the idea of the sword. The point that Jesus is making is, is hard times are coming. And even if it means it hurts you, you need to be prepared. And then the point of this text is when he says why that is. He says, let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Because I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. If they thought that Jesus was saying, we need to all get swords because we're about to overthrow the Roman government, when they said, look, Jesus, we got two swords, and he said, that's enough. That's enough with this kind of talk. Two swords is not going to help this motley group of people fight anybody. And so clearly Jesus' point about this is being prepared, not going to battle. Because up to this point, the crowds have been following Jesus, right? I mean, he had 5,000 people that he had to feed because they had followed him out to hear him teach. He couldn't sleep because the crowds were going everywhere with him. This guy can heal anybody. John MacArthur, in his commentary on the book of Matthew, says, Jesus effectively banished illness from Israel because everywhere he went, he healed. I mean, can you imagine if you had a sickness, this guy could just take it away? I mean, I know people... Right now, with all of the MRIs and the PET scans and the CAT scans who have an illness, they don't know what's causing it, and they, like the woman with the issue of blood, have gone for years, and they still haven't figured out why they're having the issue that they're having. And Jesus could just heal them. Somebody blind, he makes some little mud balls, puts it on their eyes, bam, they can see. Somebody who's a leper, he touches them. Bam, they're healed. The woman that we just talked about with the issue of blood, she'd gone seven years. She'd given all of her money to the doctors. And she just touched the hem of Jesus' clothes. And she felt her sickness being healed. The crowds love this guy. And Jesus is saying, all that is about to change. Now, people are going to number me with the sinners and the transgressors, and that's going to have an impact on you. So you need to be prepared. Now, this is radically against everything that was their hopes and dreams. They thought Jesus was coming to begin a new empire. Jesus is coming to sit on the throne of David. And Jesus is nailing the final nail in the casket of those thoughts. That's not going to happen. And boys, y'all need to be ready. Now, 
we could look at this as just sad. Guys, for the last three years, people have loved me. People have flocked to hear me teach. People have said that I'm a prophet who's coming. Some have said Elijah. Some have said John the Baptist raised from the dead. I'm about to be numbered with the wicked. This is sad. But this has to happen. Jesus here quotes a text from Isaiah. I want to read that section. Isaiah chapter 53, 10 through 12 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. You see, up to this point, there was no solution for sin. The sacrifices that were made in the temple year after year after year just put that sin off for the nation for a year. But sin had to be dealt with. We all instinctively know that. Justice has to be served. And we ourselves are not righteous. We ourselves know this. We can't live up to our own moral standard and we keep sinning. Someone had to come who would pay the price, who would be counted among the transgressors. In fact, in the book of 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, For our sakes he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The divine transaction that occurs when you come to Christ is that his righteousness is counted to you and your sin is put on him. I remember very well uh, being in Ankara in a mosque I told you guys the story about when I was in the mosque um, and I was down on the floor and almost got myself killed but this time I was up in the 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 upper floor which is where women and people who um, aren't Muslim can go and hang out and I was up there with a group of of Iranian kids college kids Um, the term kid I have found in my life is applied to older and older people um but so these guys were college kids, and we, we were sitting around talking, and it was near Christmas, and I had actually given them Bibles for Christmas. And so they're flipping through their Bibles. And in the Quran, it says that just before Jesus died, he, the Quran's version of the crucifixion story is that Jesus is put on the cross, and just before he dies, he's miracled off the cross, and Barabbas is miracled onto the cross, and Barabbas died on the cross. That's how the story is told in the Quran. And so they're reading in the Bible, and he, they read the story of the crucifixion, and they, one of the Iranian kids looks at me and says, 
I thought that Barabbas, Barabbas was switched with Jesus and that Barabbas died instead of Jesus. And I said, no, Jesus had to die. And I just kind of left that there. And every, they kind of look at me for a little bit and say, what do you mean he had to die? And so that gave me the opportunity to sit there and take their Bibles that were in Farsi to the best of my ability, figure out what those squiggles meant to get them to the right verses and, and say, look, this is what the Bible teaches. We can't get to God on our own. Every culture on earth wants to have a relationship with God. Everywhere I've ever been on this planet, there's temples. Now, we aren't really seeking after God there's none that seek Him, but we want to know that this God that controls the weather, that controls things, that we can have a relationship with Him. And so we build temples and we try things and we do things, but we can't because our sin keeps getting in the way. We are bound to sin and the things of God to the natural man seem foolish. So we can't get to God. So God had to make a way. He had to break into human history. And so Jesus came and He lived. If He had just lived a righteous life, that would have been awesome. But not for us. Because there had to be payment for sin. The payment for sin is death. And the book of Hebrews says that the blood of bulls and goats are not sufficient for sin. Remember the story when Jesus was, was teaching and the guys dropped the dude down from the roof? And Jesus said to the guy, your sins are forgiven. And all the religious people in the room were angry at that because they said, only God can forgive sins. Who does this guy think he is? That's actually, their point is true. Only God can forgive sins. Because when we sin, ultimately, he's the one who's offended. David said in Psalm 51, Against you and you only have I sinned and done this great evil in your sight. Well, Uriah would disagree with that. He would have probably felt pretty offended by being murdered. But ultimately, all sin is an offense to God. I can't walk up and stomp Anne's toe and then turn to Ron and say, hey, will you forgive me for that? That was rude. God's the one who's offended, so only God can forgive. Because he's the one who sin is ultimately against. Right? You tracking with me? And so Jesus, in that story, says, so that you know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, I say to you, arise, pick up your bed and walk. And the dude got up, proving that Jesus was claiming divinity. And so Jesus had to be counted as a sinner. But for those disciples and for us today... We can be forgiven, but that means that ultimately the world is not going to like you. The world's not going to like them, and the world's not going to like you. And Jesus said, don't be surprised by that in Matthew chapter 5, because it didn't like me. And if you're following me, it's not going to like you. Now, we in America have to be careful, because we like to point to anything that happens that we don't like and act like it's persecution. And I want to say loudly and clearly... 
if Starbucks doesn't say Happy Merry Christmas on their cups, that's not persecution. I'm sorry, it's just not. If you are living your life for Jesus, though, it will cost you. And as our culture devolves more and more into wickedness, it may cost you a lot. In much of the world, it costs you everything. And so what Jesus is saying is, be prepared. Don't be shocked when the world bows back on you. Because I've come to undermine the kingdom of Satan, not the kingdom of Rome. I'm building a kingdom for God. It's God's kingdom that you're a part of. This world is not your home. Don't be comfortable here. But in the New Testament, that story doesn't end with us. Well, I guess it's just all, I can't do anything. No. Let me read the rest of the story from the book of Philippians. Remember when I taught through Philippians that Paul, the whole point of the book of Philippians is to remind them to treat each other with love. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being the born in the likeness of men. You realize that in this conversation around the dinner table, Jesus has said that I'm going to be broken. He said, I am your servant. He said, I am going to be betrayed. I am now numbered among the sinners. This conversation is showing that Jesus has fully emptied himself and is going to be despised. But, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most humiliating form of punishment available. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Don't go through life with a hung head feeling defeated. You are a part of the kingdom of God and He will be victorious. The kingdom that He started there, the kingdom of God that still is being built today, that you are a part of by being a part of the universal church, that kingdom is for eternity. That kingdom is forevermore. And so tomorrow... As you go to work, remember who you are in Him and all the implications of that. Live your life in the light of His crown. Live your life to serve your King. Father God, Lord, as we come to this time of invitation, Lord, I pray that you would forgive me for how often I don't live my life in the light of your kingship and your kingdom. Lord, I thank you for this ending on this story. I thank you that you humbled yourself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Lord, we, 
we as a church today have gone through a lot of information. There's a lot of stuff that we've talked about. So, Lord, I pray that you would help our minds to absorb it and you would help our lives to live it. Lord, I pray that we would serve you and serve your kingdom. Lord, if there's anybody in this room who's not a part of your kingdom, they've never said that they would follow you so that their sins are put on you and your righteousness on them, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. Lord, if there's anyone in this room who claims you as Lord, but they're not living it out, God, I pray that they would come down to this altar and confess and repent. Lord, if there's anyone in this room that's looking for a church family with which to serve your kingdom, I pray that they would, they would join with us today. Lord, we all need from you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would touch hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.